Hello, I'm Jason Schenker, Chairman of the Futurist Institute. It's my pleasure to be here with you today. My topic today is about disruptions ahead, how business, technology, and the economy will impact industries in the decade ahead and beyond. Of course, we need to start with the three biggest areas of disruption that we've seen as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. The changes we've seen with the initial outbreak, the COVID-19 shutdowns, and the recession that resulted from that have been significant. And the three areas that helped save the day were remote work, online education, and e-commerce. These areas, these technologies, were already ascending before COVID-19 happened. Many people might think of this as having taken a, a new step or discovering a new technology, but the truth is it was more about adopting existing technologies and being agile in the face of challenges that was most important. As we think about technology in the decade ahead and beyond, that agility, being responsive, and being willing to adopt technologies that help you get things done will remain the most critical, decisive factor that will differentiate successful companies from those that struggle. Let's take a deeper dive, though, first into remote work, online education, and e-commerce before we look at more emerging technologies and what we might want to think about in the years ahead. As we think about remote work, the most important dynamic we see is that the trend was already there. There had been a change in commuter modes between 2005 and 2015 that showed a massive jump in the percent of people who were working remotely compared to all other modes of commuting. Additionally, there is a key differentiating factor for workers that work remotely uh, versus those that don't. And that differentiating factor is education. If we look at data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics from 2018, we see that the average annual number of days worked remotely was significantly higher for people with advanced degrees than it was for any other category. Up as a close second was people who have bachelor's degrees. In other data, a little bit prior to that, 2013 to 2017, BLS data reflects that the occupations most impacted directly by opportunities for remote work were those in management, professional, and related occupations. Not coincidentally, these are occupations that are often dominated by folks who have bachelor's degrees or advanced degrees. And that's something that we've seen for many years highly correlated. During the COVID-19 pandemic and as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, that relationship strengthened even further. And although many people might think, well, the economic shutdown is far behind us, uh, surely things may be going back to more like they were before. That is in many places simply not true. And in the United States, data from September 2020 actually reflect that 49.5% 
of Americans age 25 or older with advanced degrees are currently working remotely as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. For people with bachelor's degrees, it's 36.6%. But here's the catch. Those are only the people working remotely explicitly because of the COVID-19 pandemic. That does not take into account the number of people and the percentage of workers with either bachelor's degrees or advanced degrees who were working remotely before the pandemic or have jobs that would be permanently remote and have nothing to do with the pandemic. That 49.5% for advanced degrees, that 36.6% for bachelor's degrees, that's just because of the pandemic. Which means if we look back to this other data from 2018 or the buckets in occupations from 2013 to 2017, this imputes and implies that the percentage of workers with bachelor's degrees working remotely because of COVID or just because that was the gig already is probably very close to 50% or more. Furthermore, for people with advanced degrees, it's probably somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of all people with advanced degrees are working remotely, either because of the pandemic or because that was already their gig. This is something that's going to be really important as we think about the future of work. Most companies want to win the war for talent, I'm sure. Everyone watching this wants to have the most talented, the best people, right? The most skills, the most education, everything they can get, right? Bells and whistles and the whole deal. The implication here is that workers that have high levels of education are working remotely. And although some people don't like to work remotely or they may not like this experience, whenever you have an experience and a change like we've experienced, a lot of people may like it. And that's actually what we see in some other data, that the ratio of those folks who find themselves to be more productive versus those who find themselves more, more productive remotely, I mean, versus those who find themselves to be more productive working in an office, that's a three to one ratio, which means you're probably going to have a lot of people working to push to stay remote long after the pandemic is in the rear view. This is something that I've been expecting. I actually wrote about in my book, The Future After COVID, that came out in April. That This trend has been going on for years, right? And I, to, to give you some idea of what's changed here, I think about my own career. I had started an investment banking in 2004. I was an economist uh, for Trading Desk as well as for the investment bank overall. And by the end of the, that First year in 2004, because of some forecasts I'd made and some work I'd done, I became promoted to the chief energy and commodity economist for the bank. But that role didn't come with a laptop. In order to have a laptop, you really needed to be at the executive level for the bank because laptops were, one, expensive, and two, people, uh, they weren't very good. And, and three, uh, people really didn't want folks working remotely. They didn't think people would work if they were working from home, right? There was this, this perception. But I think what's been revealed during this post-pandemic, the immediate post-pandemic outbreak during the shutdown, during this recession is if you're working remote, you really can't hide. Either you get your deliverables done or you don't. And the potential for people who may have been quieter in the office, who people uh, maybe just didn't see, right? There's some, some folks have bigger personalities in an office and those folks who get more attention might sometimes get more promotions, right? If you see people, right, that's a big deal. 
But for folks who may have been a bit more on the quiet side or might just have been diligently working, might not make waves at the office, now the fact that they always get their work done, that's something that presents a big opportunity as we think about future promotion and job opportunity. Whereas folks who might have had bigger personalities in the office, if they get their work done, same thing, great, smooth sailing. But if they don't, they won't have anything else to fall back on in, in a more remote environment. And I know that the staff I've had, I've, I've worked remotely now for uh, 13 years, first in consulting, where I, when I left banking in, in 2004, uh, well, in 2004 to 2007, I was in banking, 2007, uh, I left and, and went to McKinsey. And as compared to banking, where I couldn't have a laptop, the first day on the job at McKinsey, they handed me a laptop and said, this is your office, you will not have a desk, right? That was night and day, and that was 2007, right? This isn't a new idea to having people work remotely, right? That I mean, this was 13 years ago. And after working there for a couple of years in the almost 11 years since where I've had my own firm, Prestige Economics, I've always worked remotely. My staff works remotely. And I don't really care when stuff gets done or how it gets done or where it gets done. All I care about is the stuff is done. It's done right. It's on time. And that's very different. Uh, and, and the remote environment is so very different in many respects than the in-person environment. But it presents opportunities for people's work to potentially be more objectively evaluated because whether you get it done or you don't, you, you can't hide anymore, right? In the same way that you really can't be ignorant of technology, we are way past that point. For any businesses that think they can hide from digital transformation uh, or they can wind the wheels back on everything that's happened, that's going to be very difficult. I, I know a number of companies that are trying to dial things back and they want everything to go back to normal, that's going to be very tough. We've seen many companies in the news try to rush their people back to the office and then they have a, an outbreak of COVID and everybody goes back home again, right? And uh, in, in the end, the companies also in this current economic environment under a bit of pressure probably should also be realizing there's value in reducing the overhead of their business. And the overhead comes in a couple forms. One of those forms is the people that help you do your business, right? And, and there's a positive ROI to those people. But then there's the office space that you suddenly realize maybe you don't need. And so that transformation, if you got to cut overhead, well, now cutting the office is a lot easier and makes a lot more sense. And uh, we're seeing this, right? In the tech industry, there have been massive cuts to office space. And we're going to see even more cuts. Why not, right? It saves companies money. And in a time where we're still going to see some choppy economic conditions, this is going to be important. But the ability to be remote for many workers still hinges uh, predominantly on the education piece, right? Because for those workers that have less than a high school diploma, only 3.6% of those workers are remote because of COVID-19. And that's a far cry from the 49.5% of workers with advanced degrees who are working remotely. Now, the online education piece could help bridge that gap, right? We think about companies improving their productivity and wanting to grow and want to adopt technology and, and, and want to get better, be more competitive, right? Always moving forward. And if we look, uh, one of the areas we've seen grow in recent years is massive open online courses, right? MOOCs 
as they're called. These things have been accelerating. Again, this is more than a decade long where we've seen this chart here of increasing numbers of online courses, right? Coursera, Udemy, LinkedIn Learning, right? There, there's a number of different places where you can take online courses, but there are also certificates and degrees that have been online for many years. I, I did a a financial planning certificate prior to, to doing the certified financial planner designation at CFB back in 2009. I did all the courses online. Again, much like with the deliverables for the office, you can't hide with that stuff, right? You watch the course at your own pace. You have quizzes and tests and either you're passing or you don't. And that's the deal. Between 2014 and 2016, I did an entire master's degree in negotiation online. And it was the third one I'd done. And I can say, compared to the other master's degrees, that I probably had to read a higher percentage of the pages for the degree in negotiation I did entirely online than for the degrees I did in applied economics or in German literature. Those were in person. But, you know, if it's online, you, you kind of just have to do all the stuff. So this is very interesting because you're forced to be more productive. Uh, you're forced to go out and uh, keep what you kill in a certain way, whether that's getting your work done because you, you, you have to do it or learning what you have to do. But the learning opportunities have been there for many years and they're going to increase. And this is a good thing because not only do people with more education have more opportunities to work remotely, but if we look at BLS data, U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics data, they're the folks who put together things like the unemployment rate and other statistics about the U.S. economy. If we look at the relationship between education, there is a very clear relationship both between education and the unemployment rate and education and wages. This graphic shows two very different things. On the left-hand side are the unemployment rates. And those rates, they are the highest for people who have less than a high school diploma, but they're lowest for people with doctoral degrees. And what you'll see in this graphic is that at every single level of education higher, every step, the unemployment rate is lower. Additionally, on the right, is wages. And on the right, we look at the wage levels and we see that at every level of additional education, the median usual weekly earnings is higher every time you hit another formal degree threshold, every single time. If you have a bachelor's degree, the, and then this is across the entire economy, right? Like all industries, all workers, right? This is just all, all levels, right? You have a bachelor's degree, you're making twice as much on a weekly basis than if you don't have a high school diploma. And if you have a doctoral degree or a professional degree, you're earning three times uh, roughly more uh, than what people who have less than a high school diploma make every single week. So here's the deal, right? The education piece is critical for individuals. It's critical for companies. But it, it also means that if you want to win that war for talent, you might need to support your people moving up this ladder. And you might need to expect that now that they're becoming accustomed to working remotely, uh, your workers and roles you need to fill with the highest level of education and not just formal education, but people with the highest level of technical skill will also have similar leverage and may also want to work remotely. 
This is really big for workers. And now that many people have tried, been forced to try uh, online education, I am actually very optimistic about the potential for more people to have more degrees and more certificates and more training 10 years from now as a percent of the population we have now. People are trying this new thing and they find out it can be wildly convenient and they don't have to commute to and from buildings across town after work, right? If they're working remotely, it's obviously the easiest conditions to go from remote work to remote education. But even if you uh, have in-person work, obviously remote education's uh, a, a very uh, convenient option. Now, we've talked about three levers there, but there's a fourth uh, value to the education piece, and that's in being robot-proof. If we look forward one of the big questions is, what happens when we see a lot more automation? What share of jobs will be highly automatable? And this is data from a report that was put together by the U.S. Office of the President in 2016, so under then-President Obama. And 44% of jobs that require less than a high school diploma were deemed to be highly automatable. The minute it requires a trade school certificate, that falls to 8%. And when it gets to a bachelor's degree, if your job requires a bachelor's degree, the number, the percent of highly automatable jobs in that category was assessed to be 1%. And if your job requires a graduate degree, the percent of jobs that are viewed highly automatable in that category was 0%. This is really important, right? Because this means that the education piece adds not only the opportunity to have a lower rate of unemployment, but more education, uh, increases your wages, increases your ability to work remotely, and increases your potential to be robot-proof. In other words, you have a job that is not as highly automatable as jobs that require lower levels of education. As we look at the economy overall, in the decade ahead and beyond. It's important to consider something that economists talk about. It's called the solo growth model. And the function is really that the GDP, the growth of an economy is a function of capital, labor, and technology. Capital is super cheap right now, right? The Fed has signaled they're going to have rates between zero and 0.25% through at least the end of 2023. In other words, into 2024 at least. Labor, Right now, the unemployment rate is high and there's a lot of available workers, but at some point, we're going to see the job market improve over the next couple of years. But that third piece is probably the most important piece of the puzzle, and that's the technology piece. That's where we saw big leaps happen during COVID-19. And as we look at the decade ahead, that technology piece is going to become even more critical. The education piece becomes really important as that dovetails in is, if we see new kinds of technologies coming along, you're going to want highly adaptive workforces, very agile workforces that can get up learning curves very, very quickly with new technologies. This is something that will become very critical for companies. I mean, it already is, but it will become more critical in the years ahead as we see technology change even more rapidly and people who have formal education and have really worked on building their, their metacognition skills, uh, which is just a fancy way to say that they understand how to learn. So learning how to learn is like a really big part of doing a bachelor's degree or, or uh, even to a certain degree, a graduate degree, but definitely a big part of a bachelor's degree, learning how to learn, metacognition. 
you certainly want people working for your company who can learn things very quickly, right? Especially if the technology is changing and it's highly competitive. Very, very important moving forward. Another area where we've seen the technology be really important is in this third critical pillar that helped support the economy during the COVID-19 outbreak, economic shutdown and recession, which is a supply chain, right? As we think about what was something that helped save the day, this is clearly it, right? There were concerns about food shortages, but people didn't want to go out of their homes, right? In many cases, they were mandated not to leave their homes. And we saw this reflected in the e-commerce data. The percent of retail that's e-commerce had been rising, like many of the other trends we've already looked at, like for the MOOCs or for working remotely, that had been rising for decades. But it went really parabolic during the uh, the initial phases here of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, while the percent of retail going to e-commerce retailers you know, might see some give back, the trend is still likely to be higher. We've just pressure cooked and accelerated a trend already in place. Because after all, what's the big deliverable with e-commerce? What's convenience, right? You want the goods, you want them fast. And we're going to see this continue to accelerate. In the short term, we're going to see also continued strength in areas like material handling, which are the equipment manufacturers that move things around, warehouses and distribution centers, and the strength in goods demand, something that wasn't hit nearly as much during the pandemic as services, right? Services were hit really hard. Talk about challenges in a second, but it's really important to realize that that goods piece of the economy, both with the retail sales and, and manufacturing overall, those areas were really strong. And part of the reason e-commerce is likely to be important, not just now, I mean, that story's not over yet, right? Is because for brick and mortar retail, when you go to a store, historically the supply chain was set up for what's called pallet batching, which is, and maybe you've seen these pallets, right? They're made out of wood and they stack stuff on it. Sometimes they wrap it in cellophane. Uh, the pallets can also be made of other materials as well. But but you've got these, you know, these big shipments of things and they go to a store and then the store, you know, cuts open the cellophane, puts the stuff on the shelves and they sell it to individuals, right? You go to the store and buy it. Well, today, most uh, of the move in e-commerce isn't in pallets, right? It's in single piece batching. And chances are y'all aren't buying stuff in pallets. I mean, maybe maybe some of you watching this got super freaked out during the initial outbreak of COVID-19 and you did order a pallet of toilet paper or ramen noodles or canned goods or waters or whatever. But in general, the e-commerce piece is for single piece batching, right? You're going on Amazon or you're going on to some other online retailer and you're ordering one or two or three of something. You're not ordering a pallet of it. And that single piece batching requires a lot more data, a lot more technology. Uh, we're going to see this become more important with, say, IoT and sensor use and a number of other things, right? This area is going to continue to be really strong. Now, against the backdrop of these three pillars of strength that really saved the day, and if we'd had the COVID-19 pandemic at any period in history earlier, just based on the graphs, we wouldn't have been ready for it. The e-commerce wouldn't have been ready. The online education opportunities wouldn't have been there. The, the development for remote work wouldn't have been there in the same way. We would have been in a pretty tough pickle. But uh, there are areas that still represent challenges. 
Some industries will continue to suffer due to the nature of the COVID-19 pandemic in the short term, but this could also have longer term impacts. We look at something like oil prices and the uh, the energy market, right? Oil prices uh, it took a really big hit earlier this year uh, and they've since bounced back, but remain relatively low. The reason for this is that air travel is still pretty low. The 2020 TSA throughput compared to 2019. So what this is showing is that right now, uh, in, in recent weeks, the percent of throughput through TSA checkpoints, the percent of people flying in the United States, is 30 to 40% of last year's levels. In other words, it's 60 to 70% fewer air travelers. This could remain depressed for some time for a few different reasons, right? And, and the biggest one, of course, is the COVID-19 risk and everything around that. The other thing is uh, you might have fewer uh, tourists, right? Tourism uh, is taking a hit. And there's the third piece, which is business travel, right? The most lucrative part of most travel is business travel. And we're going to see that be uh, probably weighed down for some time to come. This is probably a function not just of COVID-19 concerns, but also budget concerns. A lot of companies looking at the year ahead, trying to be conservative with their money. Uh, the cash is king in this environment. That's going to be critical, especially if there is a, a concern that, that corporate taxes might go up. Every dollar uh, that's saved is a dollar that shows up as EBITDA or after-tax earnings, right? So uh, th th this is important. And uh, I mean, it doesn't show up as a full dollar in the after-tax. But, but the point is, you're going to see companies look to reduce some of their costs. And travel's always on the list. But this is going to weigh on things like uh, aircraft orders and, you know, uh, uh, aircraft sales. And they have already. And we could see that continue as well. Those industries will take a hit. Another thing we've seen that we'll probably see for some time to come is the number of miles driven has fallen sharply. And even though it's rebounded, it's still pretty low. And that is going to be something that negatively impacts light vehicle sales in the U.S. Those are also under pressure. So auto sales probably going to remain low because, man, what's going on? Well, if people aren't commuting at work. They're not going they're not driving to school. Right. If people are doing remote work, remote education and they're not going to the store either and they're doing more e-commerce, people are putting fewer miles in their car. Well, fewer miles on your car means. You don't need new cars as often. So this is going to impact auto sales. Now, looking beyond COVID-19, industries that might you know, when are going to be supply chain and material handling, as well as technology oriented companies and those that are looking to uh, capitalize on uh, on uh, other new technologies in demand that help people either work remotely or keep them safe. Right. I think about contactless technologies opportunities, but there are other areas as well. And it's in this data piece where we see that. And uh, the, the real impact on the data side is going to be dealing with the breakdown of Moore's Law. One of the things that's been going on in recent years is that there has been uh, a correlation, actually a multi, there's been a, a multi-decade correlation essentially, between uh, inverse, between the, the processing power of technology and the cost. So every year we see uh, processing power go up at a lower price. Amazing. That's Moore's Law. But that's been breaking down. And now... If you want to do more processing, you need to buy more 
processors. It's what some folks in the tech industry refer to as brute force. It's not very elegant because you're not having a technological step change. But if you want to capture the most upside going forward, you really, for the short term, probably need to be doing a lot more with processors. And this is going to be critical in an IoT world. And it will be critical really until we probably have a step change with quantum computing, which is probably a little bit uh, a little bit much to get into detail here. But just the, the thing you need to know is it will be something that allows your computer to do a different kind of processing uh, that is uh, very good for large data sets. So right now, computers, we have tablets, phones, they operate as deterministic, non-probabilistic devices, right? You tell them to do things and they do them, right? If you open Excel, you go two plus two equals four. But with a quantum computer, uh, you can have a massive data set and uh, search for something, right? If you have a massive uh, amount of data and you want to find, for example, if you were looking at geologic data, you want to find the best place to drill an oil well, uh, it would probabilistically cut out the wrong answers and give you uh, what seems to be the right one. And it's quite complicated, but that technology is coming in the decade ahead. That could similarly, by the way, be used to optimize something I've already talked about here, which is supply chain, right? We're moving lots and lots and lots of stuff around. You might want to be optimizing in real time ever more quickly with uh, not just sort of more rudimentary predictive analytics or machine learning, you actually want to be getting to higher levels of artificial intelligence and quantum computing can really help with that to optimize massive, massive data sets in a very rapid period of time. So that sort of seeking uh, of the solution is something that will be very important. But for businesses, the most important and really the toughest thing based on some survey data that was released a couple of years ago shows that the toughest challenge for data is in developing a culture of data. Establishing that data-driven culture is much tougher than almost anything you can do. Easy stuff to do is finding places to cut costs. That's the easiest. And there's other stuff in between, right? So if, if cutting costs is the easiest and developing the data-driven cultures the toughest, you know, maybe finding new innovations or trying to transform the businesses somewhere in between those. But there's a gamut of how you use data. In the decade ahead and beyond, really having that culture, that data-driven culture, being able to analyze things with your data, being able to show things with your data, being able to tease out the implications, and having everyone on board with all of that happening is really paramount to being successful. So not just adopting the new technologies, but really wrapping your arms around and giving a big, huge bear hug to everything data related, right? Now, the final thing I want to say is, as we think about future opportunities, I know I've talked about areas that have already seen big growth, right? But they're going to see more. Online education, e-commerce, remote life, remote work, all that stuff's going to continue and accelerate. There's a lot of fundamental things driving that. But there are other things, too, that we've seen increase recently, like remote health and safety and contactless technologies and other technologies that foster convenience. All of those things will present tremendous opportunities for innovation, disruption, and you're going to see probably a lot of startups in these areas in the years and decades to come. 
Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure to speak here today. Thank you.